Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Making Coffee. It's always a special episode when I get to break out of the routine of talking into the void to myself and instead get to talk to guests. So in today's episode, you're going to hear a lot of different voices. Um, Oh, I also wanted to mention that in the last episode, episode 43, I said we would look at drawing from Brazilian researchers, but I need to interrupt the regularly scheduled programming because I got this opportunity to make a collaboration episode with Scott, Jules, and James from the Adventures in Coffee podcast. But before we get to that, I also want to let you know that part of the reason there was such a gap between episodes is because I had a breakthrough case of COVID that really knocked me on my butt for about two weeks, and then the other two weeks I was really operating at like 30%. Um, And I still feel like I'm dealing with some symptoms of long COVID, like fatigue and strained breathing. When I go on walks around my house, I feel like I can't quite get a full breath of air into my lungs. I feel like a little bit of the pressure, but that might also have to do with like, there's no easy walks around my house. It's just like immediate steep incline hiking. So it may not be a very fair comparison. Um, I'm really grateful that I was vaccinated and boosted, but it still hit me really hard, surprisingly hard. And I shared some of this experience with the Patreon community. Anyway, I'm back just functioning a little bit slower than I'm used to. And I only mention this now because you'll hear James and I talk about it in the second half of the episode. I had a nasty cough for about 13 days that didn't let me make calls or record anything. Like any attempt at talking triggered like this full body reaction to coughing. Like it was just like in my chest and I just like any talking made me want to cough. So I had a lot of silent reflection time during my illness. Anyway, let's keep this intro short. Basically, in the first 30 minutes, you'll hear the episode that came out a few days ago on the Adventures in Coffee channel, but there was so much that we had to cut out to make this episode, so I talked to James about it, and he and I took a few more days, and we hopped back on our microphones to talk about the process of making this episode and how you know he decided, like his producer brain, what he decided to keep and then what got cut, and so I hope you'll enjoy that behind-the-scenes look at making the episode, and I hope that you'll enjoy this break in different format. Let's get started. Welcome to Adventures in Coffee, a podcast about the toasty and chocolatey world of coffee, brought to you by Akawa Home and Siemens Home Appliances. Yes, here on Adventures in Coffee, we serve you surprising coffee stories to open your taste buds and minds, and hopefully to inspire you to have coffee adventures in your very own kitchen. I'm Jules Walker, uh, otherwise known as Lady Velo on other parts of the internet. I am a best-selling cycling author from East London and, of course, your very everyday coffee lover. Uh, I am Scott Bentley. I'm the founder of Caffeine Magazine, all-round coffee dork. I'm also an art director and a brand strategist. So, Jules, look, I've got two coffee bags in front of me and I wonder if you could tell me what ways they are different. This one is an old school Italian roast and the other looks like a speciality coffee. So looking at the Italian coffee, there isn't a heck of a lot of information on there apart from the fact that it's a classic Italian coffee. Yeah. Now this second bag, um, this looks like it's come from a speciality roaster. And this gives me a lot more information Mm. on it, Scott. So I will know the altitude that the, the coffee has been grown at the variety the processing and the flavor notes so there's a lot more going on uh what about the difference in the price first one that you showed me was about three pounds and then this one i'm looking at is 20. so scott it seems here that the more information that's provided the higher the quality is and the higher the price yep bang on the nose okay look this is an interesting thing here where did that idea come from i'm gonna give you a little clue I'm going to show you now a picture of uh, the back of a wine bottle. So okay. this is the label on the back of this wine bottle. What do you notice, Jules? There's some some quite interesting technical information on here. So we've got details about the primary soils, the barrel regime. Barrel regime, 16 months in French oak. The flavour notes, rose petal, black cherry, 
Can I get you to read out what it says under primary soils? Marine divided sediments confer complexity and vibrancy. I'm laughing at this, but the reality is there are many things from the wine world which have been kind of borrowed by the coffee world to try and increase like the value and the price of the coffee. Have we got some like other examples of that happening? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You can look at things like uh, the coffee tasting wheel, mm. the notion of things like terroir. And then, of course, you've got like the more recent things like, you know, processing. You know, that's the stage between you've got the red cherry and you're getting the green bean out of it. Now, look, many processing techniques have been borrowed from the world of wine. You've got things like anaerobic fermentation and carbonic maceration. And people in the coffee world, you know, they're asking themselves again and again, what's the next logical phase? Where can we go next? Maybe we could do things like like biodynamic coffee or like, you know, skin contact coffee. I mean, we could do this stuff. Now, I'm going to have to stop you there, Scott, because the other day, producer Man James was interviewing Lucia Solis. Now, Lucia is a coffee and wine processing specialist who has her own podcast. And when he told us about what he had discussed, we decided we absolutely needed to bring her on as a guest and co-host for the show. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think Lucia did suggest that it's all very well and good for us to be kind of like sitting in our cafes, our homes, making coffee to keep borrowing these things from the wine world. But once we're actually taken to the farms Mm -hmm. and just really see how these products are, are really made, it might question whether we should be borrowing so many things from the world of wine. So in this episode, we Mm. have Lucia with us, who's going to give us a a very interesting peek behind the curtain of these two products that we, we love to drink, coffee and wine. And, you know, maybe this comparing and contrasting of the two will help us appreciate the beverages a little bit more. Lucia, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome, Lucia. Thanks for having me. Could you introduce yourself, please, for our dear listener? So I am a coffee processing specialist and I live in Colombia and I work with coffee producers. So in my previous life, I worked for 10 years in the wine industry. And then in 2016, I started devoting myself to working exclusively with coffee producers. And the podcast was born out of um, a desire to not want to continually repeat myself. And so I realized that I really wanted to have an audio library of a lot of the things that I was talking about really specific to fermentation and microbiology as applied to coffee. From your perspective, why did you want to work with us on this episode about coffee and wine? I've spent a lot of time on coffee farms and on wine vineyards. And once you're in both of these worlds, when I see how much the coffee industry is borrowing from wine, um, wine processing techniques like anaerobic fermentation and carbonic maceration, etc., I really realize on a deeper level how irrelevant they are to coffee. And not just irrelevant, I actually think that they can be really dangerous. I think when we treat coffee farms like vineyards, we can actually be doing a lot of serious harm. And I want to take you on this journey to show you why. But instead of telling you guys about how these two worlds are different, I wanted to bring on two friends of mine, colleagues that uh, are both in the wine world and in the coffee world, and let you hear directly from a coffee producer and a wine producer. Cool. So first up, coffee. So my name is Carla Bosa. I am a coffee producer at Finca San Antonio Amatepec in El Salvador. So on top of being a coffee producer, Carla is also a Q grader. So a Q grader is kind of the coffee industry's version of a sommelier. And I have a whole podcast about how I don't think that's a very good comparison, but it kind of gives you an idea that she is a very professional and trained coffee taster. She's also participated in coffee competitions in El Salvador, and she's written for many publications in the industry. Oh, wow, Lucia. I mean, she, she sounds like she's pretty established. Um, yes, Jules, that's right. And not only is she a really interesting person, but her coffee farm is quite unusual for two reasons. For one, something unique about her farm is that it used to be a theme park. And it was El Salvador's only theme park around like the 80s. Then it had to shut down because of the Civil War. It reopened again. It shut down again. And then that area was left abandoned. It changed hands a couple of times, and then eventually her father came to own it. So this is like the Chesterton world of coffee then, is that right? 
you beat me to it. That's what I was going to say. But yeah, so so Chessington and Alton uh, Towers are big theme parks over here. So that's, I'm already imagining how massive that must be. <laughs> we need a translation for the Americans. I'm like, what is that? <laughs> it's like Disney. Well, yeah, yeah, the UK's Disney's, Disney's first, world. Yeah. Um, and because it was a theme park, it's actually very close to the capital, San Salvador. There is a McDonald's maybe like five to seven minutes away from the gates of the farm. You can get Uber Eats <laughs> delivered to the farm. If you're on the patio and you look to the left, you will see all of the center of San Salvador. And if you look to the right, you'll see a volcanic lake that is right next to us. That's kind of mind blowing though, Jules, isn't it? It's mm. kind of, you, whenever you think coffee farms, I mean, I've been to some coffee farms in uh, Colombia. It is up a mountain yeah. track. It's really narrow. The Jeep is like slipping on the cobbles and just trying to get you up the side of this thing. But yeah, the fact that you can be on a coffee farm and then phoning in like pizza. Yeah, <laughs> not quite as secluded as, as I imagine, but that's that in itself is just fascinating. And actually, Carla didn't grow up thinking she would be in coffee at all. I actually studied mm. sociology, and prior to that, I was working mm. with a water nonprofit and also with an immigration program here in El Salvador. So Carla is a very unusual coffee grower. She speaks English, she's university educated, she has the means to travel. But for mm. me, the element that's most interesting about Carla is that she's very young. So we know that in coffee, the average age of a coffee producer is about 65. That's the average age is 65 years old. So wow. coffee growing is not really appealing to the next generation. Yeah. She does sound fascinating. And I also spoke with a winemaker. Yeah, I'm Todd Cohn. I'm the winemaker for Wayfair Vineyard. And then along with my wife, we own and make the wine for Curves and Edges. Todd and I are friends from school. We both studied winemaking at UC Davis. And then um, after we graduated, we worked together at the same winery and we had some extra time and we're just like super overachievers. So in 2012, during the daytime, we would make wine for the winery and then we would come home in the evenings and then we would make our own wine that we made. I made garage wine in my house um, with him. Quick background on me, born and raised in California where I currently live and make wine. Um, went to UC Davis to study how to grow grapes and make wine and then spent about five years doing internships around uh, Napa Valley, Sonoma Valley, um, and have been at Wayfair now for about 10 years. For those of you who don't know, the Napa Valley is about an hour north of San Francisco, and it's considered one of the top viticultural areas in the United States. Okay, so Lucia, how are you doing this comparison between the two? We're going to be looking at three different points of comparison between Carla's farm and Todd's vineyard the picking side, the processing side, and then the economics of all of it. Because there are three big points that I want to get across to you guys. The first big point, and this might sound super, super obvious, but in coffee, we really just want the green bean. We want the seed. We don't really care that much about the fleshy fruit or the juice or the skin around it. But in the wine industry, we want the opposite. All we care about is the juice and the skin, and we're trying to make the seed as invisible as possible. This might sound really simple, but it has very profound implications. So what I want to do now is show you, for example, what does that mean when it comes to picking? Let's look at how Carla does picking and then compare that to how Todd does it. First up, Carla. What happens is that we usually start picking coffee basically around sunrise. And it goes on until around maybe like 2 p.m. So Carla might have a dozen or more pickers with sacks trudging up and down her slopes, each sack full of coffee that maybe weighs like 50 kilos. These are really very heavy bags that people are wow. expected to carry up these steep slopes. That's two Boris bikes on your back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we tried to ask them to cut and harvest the coffee right when it's red, like really mature. And I always tell them to wear long sleeves, pants, long socks, and closed toe shoes because we have a lot of bugs and a lot of insects. There might be like poison ivy or something with thorns around. So then you want to be very careful that you don't have like skin contact. So you, you've got these coffee pickers on the side of a mountain. Yeah. It's subtropical conditions, full clothes. Yeah. Oh, that's what I was thinking. The, the long sleeves, the, the trousers, everything covered. It just feels like it's very hot and yeah. exhausting work. And I want you to think about those cherries. They're moved around in these really heavy sacks. They're kind of moved from place to place. They're really rough and tumble. Like when I first saw this in the coffee industry, I was horrified as a winemaker how these coffee cherries were treated. So now let's go to Todd. And I asked him what happens on his picking day. We harvest everything at night. So we start harvesting at midnight and we finish at 5 a.m. 
is we'll have a tractor with what's called a bin trailer. It holds two of our half-ton bins. So on that tractor, we have a large light tower with LED lights, and it floods the whole area around it with light. And then the second aspect is each person has a headlamp. Why does Todd pick at night? So it's really important to pick for us at night because if we pick during the day, a few things can happen. Um, So the grapes are warmer during the day. All of the fruit gets eventually put into a half-ton bin and then stacked on a truck. So that creates juice. Mm -hmm. And if it sits in there and it's warm for two hours, then it can actually start fermenting along with bacterial growth or other things that can happen. And we don't want that to happen yet. I'm not ready to start fermenting until I'm ready to start (laughs) fermenting. You can hear that Todd is constantly trying to minimize heat and breaking any of the fruit, like physically breaking the grape clusters, because any Mm -hmm. physical damage and heat can accelerate the microbial process of turning grape juice into wine. And if he doesn't put this much care into picking, the wine flavors will be unpredictable. This is a really interesting contrast here because Todd is being so careful not to break the grapes and not to kind of let any of the juice kind of like seep out. But Mm. for Carla, it's just like, let's just get them off the tree, get them in a bag and get them down the mountain as soon as possible. Just such a contrast between the two. Exactly. As I said before, it's really about getting the seed out. So we don't really care about the flesh that much in coffee. But in wine, it's a totally different ballgame. It's all about the flesh and how you treat that flesh. So being careful is really important. And in coffee, what first horrified me, I realized is not really that important. So now the next big point that I want to get across, and it's pretty obvious, but when you think about it, In wine, grape juice needs a fermentation to become wine. Without a fermentation, grape juice will never become wine. But in coffee, we don't really need the fermentation to have coffee. The seed can still be roasted and become the coffee that we brew and enjoy. So let's look a little more deeply at the processing side. What do we do with the fruit once we have it? How do we process it? What are the priorities for Carla versus Todd? So again, let's start with Carla's farm. So she's got her cherries. Yeah, they'll spread it out on the floor. She picks out the bad cherries. Like overly matured that is damaged or unripe. Now remember how Carla's farm is in an old theme park? So what they do is they actually spread the coffee cherries to dry underneath the sun on the grounds of the theme park. It used to be where you arrived with like the gondolas from the Teleferico and that's where you would sort of land. And one of the challenges that they have on this theme park is that they have very little water. So their processing method is a natural processing, a dry process method, where the sun is what dries the coffee cherry with the skin still on the cherry. And then you have to hull it later on. And we definitely want to get all of that or as much as we can done by sunset because there is no water, no electricity where our patios are. So for the next few days, we have a designated patio manager. His name is Rogelio. And how does he know when the coffee is dried and it's ready to go inside and be stored? We have a a moisture meter. So once Rogelio sees that the moisture is just right, he has to get the coffee cherries off of the patio so that we can get the green seed out of it. So we don't have our own mill. So then we try to do things as low tech as possible. What we do is that we have a small hand mill for corn. And in that, we put the coffee. And once you grind it up, it actually works really well for removing all of these exterior layers from the coffee cherry. And it's super low tech. Um, You don't need electricity for it. It's really easy to use. And then we gather the green beans and we put it in the moisture meter and we measure how much moisture it has. So then the coffee goes into sacks and the green beans are ready to be shipped to a roaster. I mean this in the nicest way that it's quite simple, isn't it? I think Carla says it best, it's low tech. Mm. And listen, low tech works for Carla because it's all about freshness. So they're getting it off the trees as quickly as possible. They're drying it on the patios very quickly because they want to avoid those heavy rains, trying to get the coffee to this stable point so that they can ship it off and it can get to its final destination. So speed is a really important factor. So Lucia, what is it like on the wine side? What is it that Todd's doing? Okay, so first things first, I want you to picture in your mind what Todd's facility looks like. If you come in the big roll-up door where the fruit comes in, on the left side, you would see a, our big press. Then you would see two uh, stainless steel tanks. To the right of that is where our sorting table is. But then off to the side behind walls on the left and right, we have our barrel rooms for barrel storage. 
and those are fully temperature controlled, humidity controlled. The levels of precision already. Mm. <laughs> So yeah, the tanks, these facilities are pretty intense. But even before the grapes have arrived, Todd has scrubbed everything down, the whole winemaking team, everything. We sanitize anything that's going to touch the fruit, including our own hands and feet. (laughs) The sorting table that I mentioned, it'll get some sort of soap on it to rinse and clean everything up. And then it'll get an acid to neutralize it and then an actual sanitizing agent to really sanitize. We do that with the press, the tank. Anything that's going to touch that wine at all gets a full sanitation. So in a typical eight-hour day, we spend about four hours just cleaning and sanitizing. So why is there so much sanitation going on in the wineries? It's all about the fermentation and the microbes that are doing that fermentation. I mean, Lucia, I wonder if you can kind of elaborate on why this fermentation is so important. Well, in wine, fermentation is the key to quality. Without fermentation, grape juice will never become wine. So the identity of the microbes that are doing this transformation are the ones that give wine its characteristics, that give wine its flavor. I think I get this. So there's the microbes, and they're doing the fermenting. And the wine is going to taste more like this with that microbe, and it will taste like something else if you use a different microbe. So it really matters what microbes you're using, and you've got to be on top of it. Exactly. However, in coffee, even though there is a fermentation that is part of the processing, it's not necessary. You can completely skip the fermentation, and you can still have coffee seeds turn into green beans, Mm. turn into roasted coffee. The fermentation can definitely impact the quality of the coffee, but it's not necessary. So for Carla, it's much more low-tech, it's low-cost and a lot more accessible, whereas for Todd, it's much more high-tech and definitely much more high-infrastructure because the fermentation literally makes or breaks his wine. I get it now. Coffee doesn't need complex fermentation to be a good coffee, but it can use it and it helps, right? If you include a fermentation stage, it could taste much better. Well, yes, that's true. It could taste better. But this is my third and final point. Coffee and wine are just economically worlds apart, like totally different worlds apart. And indeed, what's economically feasible in the wine world is not necessarily appropriate or feasible in the coffee world. So I want to give you an idea of just how different these two worlds are economically. So let's look at the pickers. I asked Carla how much they earn. So what is is determined by law? It's what we follow. And we pay $1.92 for an arroba. And on top of that, we also provide people with three meals a day. An arroba is a weight measurement that they use. So it's about 50 kilos. And Carla told me that the average picker might pick two arrobas a day. Okay, so if we end up doing the, the maths on this, so that's like $1.92 per arroba. I hope I said that correctly. And then you're doing two arrobas a day. So that's $4. Wow. Four dollars and and some food. You ain't getting rich on that. No. And now for the contrast, let's go over to Todd in Napa. And when I asked him what a typical worker would earn when picking, this is what he said. Around $200, $250 for the day. And again, it's going to be a, a probably six hour day. Yo, that's huge. <laughs> that's I'm, in, the... I'm in the wrong game. Oh my gosh. Now, it's kind of not fair to, you know, compare, you know, California real estate. So I lived in California most of my life, and I can tell you that the real estate prices are astronomical. So the cost of living between California in the Bay Area and living in, well, I know I live now in Colombia, but I've also lived in Mexico and I've lived in Guatemala. So living on a coffee farm is less expensive. Your overhead is very different. But it's still, keeping that in mind, an incredibly different world, uh, even in what the pickers are paid. Well, absolutely. So you've already imagined both of these facilities, Todd's Winery and Carla's theme park turned coffee processing facility. But now let's look at some of the costs between these. So for Carla, her costs include the drying tables, maybe a plastic sheeting. She has the wooden tools to move the coffee. She has a moisture meter and then that hand crank corn mill. Mm. Maybe Carla's looking at spending $1,000. Yeah, yeah, maybe several hundred, something like that. Mm. But for Todd's professional facilities, I would spend, you'd probably, you'd spend at least a half a million dollars. And that would just be for a few tanks, a press and a sorting table. I gasped when I heard <laughs> half a million dollars. <laughs> oh, God. And now finally, let's look at what Carla is able to sell her product for versus what Todd is able to sell his wine for. So for Carla, 
what we've charged for this harvest, the 21-22 harvest. I think it's like $3.20 per pound compared to last year, which was $2.60. And you know, in the UK, you might find that coffee, Carla's coffee, for about £9 per bag. And of that £9, she has probably earned £1.60. That's roughly double the typical coffee farmer would earn, so it's pretty good. Okay. So yeah, yeah. it's probably pretty good coffee mm. then. So let's see, how much does Todd actually earn for his wine? Yeah, so a retail bottle of uh, 750 milliliters, retail the price is $90 for a Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. I mean, it's kind of obvious, but can you talk us through why there is such a big discrepancy between what Carla is earning and what Todd earns? Todd sells directly to the end consumer, and there are a lot of tourists who come to Napa to the wineries, and he's able to build a relationship directly with the people that buy his wine. Carla, on the other hand, sells through intermediaries and ultimately to a roaster who then sells it to a final consumer. So for Todd, he's able to set the price that he wants to set and people come to him to buy his wine. But for Carla, she can only really sell to a number of people because she's not able to sell directly to the consumer. She has less ability to just say, this is the price that I'm going to sell my coffee for and then people are going to come and buy it. Okay, so if there's this trend now of basically coffee producers, you know, sort of using these funky wine fermentation techniques, how expensive would that be, Lucia? I mean, like doing these things like the carbonic maceration and stuff like that. Well, I think something that we need to think about is that when a lot of producers are looking to wine to do these examples, they're really just copying what they're seeing. So a lot of times they invest in the tank, the equipment that Todd was talking about. So a lot of producers will invest in some of these expensive stainless steel tanks. And a lot of producers can spend a significant part of their income just trying to buy the things to copy these processes. So look, Lucia, at the top of the show, we mentioned how like the latest thing that the coffee world is borrowing from the wine world are these like really out there crazy fermentation techniques, anaerobic fermentations and the carbonic macerations, that sort of thing. But as you put it, you know, some of these fermentation techniques are not only wildly inappropriate, but actually maybe even quite dangerous for some of these coffee producers to be really involved in. So I'm curious, do you have um, a story of when maybe this has gone wrong for a producer? They've been asked specifically to do something and then it's kind of not worked out. Unfortunately, I do. And I actually have a lot. It's not an uncommon story that I hear from producers that reach out to me because of things that have gone wrong. But um, there was a producer that I was working with in Peru, and he was asked for a particular anaerobic process. He did as much reading as he could on the internet about how to do it. But once he did, he did about half of his production in this way. And once he had finally finished the process, he sent a sample to the buyer and they didn't like it. And so they didn't end up buying the coffee. And because it was such a weird process, he couldn't find anybody else to buy his coffee. So for that year, he lost half of his production. It was just sitting in the warehouse. And when I talked to him, it was about 18 months later. And he still had that coffee sitting in the warehouse because he couldn't find anybody to buy it. You know, and this is really a striking example because it wasn't just that he lost, you know, half of his production and he lost that income and maybe he lost some time. It was such a significant investment for him that he was really questioning his position in coffee at all. He was thinking, I think I might need to leave coffee. Um, I made an episode with him called The Escape Velocity of Coffee because he was just thinking, I don't think I can be in this industry at all anymore. That's awful. I mean, that's just so damn irresponsible Mm. of the person that asked that. I mean... In some ways, you're asking the people least able to carry the burden to carry that burden. And if you want that, Mm. put your money up and like say, well, if it goes wrong, I'm still going to pay you for it because I've asked you to do it. Surely that's the only decent thing to do. I think so. I mean, I'm I'm kind of confused. Who exactly is asking for these coffee producers to do it? I mean, it's not me writing emails to, to coffee producers and saying, hey, do like a funky white process for me. I mean, where is this demand coming from? Who's pushing for this? Yeah, Jules, I think it's really interesting, too, because you're right. It's really not coming from consumers. Because, again, remember, Carla doesn't sell her coffee directly to the end consumer, she sells it to the intermediaries. And so it's the intermediaries role and the roaster's job to make these coffees exciting and interesting and to sell them. And so where they're looking to differentiate the coffees, the more you can put into describing this coffee, the higher perceived value and the higher price you could potentially get. And so a lot of this pressure is really coming from the middle kind of back. It's kind of both ways, from the middle back to the producers and then from the middle out 
to the consumers to want these coffees. So it's creating kind of like this weird vortex that is kind of unfairly putting all of this pressure towards producers to create these coffees, which, as we've seen, can be very difficult for them given their circumstances. So Scott, I have to ask, after Lucia has so brilliantly taken us on this journey, Mm. we have heard about how coffee has borrowed from wine. What are your thoughts on that now after hearing this? Ah, yeah. Thanks for kind of like throwing me under the bus there, Jules. Um, No, I I think the interesting thing here is that there are many good things that we can take from wine. Mm. But I think to kind of just overlay a different business model onto coffee is not helpful or productive. And actually, maybe what we should do is just let coffee farmers be coffee farmers and do what they do very well and compensate them for what they're doing and maybe not demand of them of things which are outside of their comfort zones maybe what you just said scott about not demanding things that may not be be possible that's got me thinking what can i do as Mm. a consumer because i'm not the one demanding that the consumers are not the ones demanding that there are lots of middlemen running around making these things happen so Mm. As, you know, on this end of the scale, what is it that I can do as a consumer to be better? I I don't think I'm particularly well positioned to answer that, but maybe Lucia is. Now I'm being thrown under the bus. Um, <laughs> no, I think that, you know, as consumers, we still do have a really strong voice in terms of our voting and what we're voting for when we're purchasing these coffees. And, you know, I'm hoping that after listening to this, you just have more awareness. I think it's really difficult for consumers to know what is marketing and what is genuine. But I still think that when you pick up a bag of coffee or when you're ordering something and it has this language or it has these types of processing, just ask yourself, is this something that I want to vote for? Is this something that I want to continue to see If we can just start with that awareness and to start to get more curious about our coffee and where it's coming from and who's making it, I think that that is the first step towards making real change and to shifting some of that power back to producers and to, you know, coffee production. I think that's a wonderful place to end. Lucia, thank you so much for taking (laughs) us on this journey. It truly has been very, very eye-opening and is making me think about wine and coffee in very different ways. Yeah, I'm also thinking it's four o'clock, which is very close to five o'clock, which is very close to wine (laughs) o'clock. I knew you were going there. (laughs) Lucia, if our dear listener wants to find out more about you, your podcast, where are the best places for them to find you? Well, my podcast is called Making Coffee with Lucia Solis. And if you like any of this going off the deep end, going into production, that's most of what my podcast covers. And I go into a lot of other aspects of making wine. Uh, So there is a three episode series on terroir and kind of debunking how we really shouldn't use terroir as, uh, you know, for coffee production in our language. I also have other ones talking more about carbonic maceration and getting, like I said, a lot more off of the deep end. And of course, there will be a link in the show notes to all of this as well. Yep. Thank you very much, uh, Lucia. And uh, I'm sure we'll have you on a podcast again very oh, soon. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Thank <laughs> Thanks, you guys. so much. Take care. So you've just finished listening to the episode and something that was really important to me was being able to talk to James about all of the things that didn't get to make it into that episode. I really love the episode. I think it's really tight, um, but it was such a different experience for me that I wanted the opportunity on airing it on Making Coffee where we get to talk about the making of things. We talk about making coffee, we talk about making wine, and I wanted to talk more with James about making this episode and all of the things that we had to cut all of the internal conflict between how we were going to craft this narrative, how long it took, and and really just dig deep into his process. Hey, James, welcome. Hey, Lucia. Thanks for the opportunity. Dear listener, thank you for taking the time to uh, listen to our Adventures in Coffee episode. James, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm James Harper. I'm the producer behind uh, Adventures in Coffee. Uh, You want a a quick little bio? We'll do all of them. Do all the podcasts that you're involved in. Sure. Okay. I mean, I make a number, a number of podcasts all in the coffee world. Um, I also create A History of Coffee, which is a six-episode series about the history of coffee with Professor Jonathan Morris. Um, also, Filter Stories is my is kind of like the OG podcast, one that's kind of kickstarted me into the world of 
coffee podcasting. It's like a deep dive into the aspects of coffee, especially coffee that no one really wants to talk about. Um, it's all, and everything I create is in that kind of, like you just heard, that kind of NPR, BBC narrative style, um, heavily edited. But I also do other things too. I've worked with uh, Bellwether Coffee to make a series for them called uh, New Wave Coffee uh, on like the challenges of, in the future of coffee. Yeah, I convinced uh, Jeffrey Young to create the Fifth Wave podcast, which is part of his Allegro group, you know, World Coffee Portal, you know, London Coffee Festival, all the World Coffee Festivals. And I'm now the producer on that. I also worked with the SEA uh, to create a bunch of stuff, uh, including the six-part narrative series about the, the coffee competitions and the history and the culture that goes with it. I do other things too. I work with Porsche, for example, uh, helping them storyboarding stuff. But I also have, have a coffee background. I, I began my career uh, in Australia, working for a large roastery. And then I came to Berlin, where I worked for the Baron as their director of wholesale. And then uh, went off uh, in 2017 to begin Filter Stories. And that's been a, a journey ever since. James, how do you decide what projects to work on? So I have questions. I have gray spots in my understanding of coffee. And I want to have those gray spots filled in. For example, I'm working on a, a coffee science series, which will be my big filter stories thing this year. And I'm not a scientist. In fact, I studied economic history at university. And I want to know more about coffee science. But my God, I cannot for the life of me wrap my head around it. So I was like, okay. I'll make a series about coffee science and try to make it as accessible as possible. So I do it for myself, really, to understand these topics much better. And in the process, I try to tell compelling stories that I, I guess everybody can then kind of jump on that bandwagon and understand it for themselves, too. So, James, can you tell us more about your process? How do you decide what goes, what stays, like what goes on in your brain to like make these episodes come together? Uh, I, I don't know how many uh, people out there in the coffee community really know what it takes to make audio audio to kind of the, the level of, of adventures in coffee or filter, filter stories or history of coffee, any of my other stuff that I make or NPR, BBC, you name it. Um, so maybe we could quickly just talk about what the process was so people get an idea of like what didn't make it. Yeah. So, uh, well, so what happened? Uh, I think there were maybe four or five steps to this. So, um, yeah, just thinking it through. So the first step was getting in a room with you, Scott and Jules and brainstorming ideas for an episode you know what should we create what sort of theme should we explore and then second step was me and you kind of doing more separate brainstorming uh thinking about like how the episode was going to come together um and then the third step was actually going out and recording stuff you know with todd and carla uh the fourth step was then um scripting um and then we sat down in a studio all together with you know scott jules yourself uh, myself the producer and um we kind of bashed it through and then the next step was to review that, um, edit it, um, and then we did a re-record session, um, did some more editing, added some music, et cetera, et cetera, and voila, we were done. Yeah, so let's go back to that first conversation we had, like before I had COVID, like when we were still in the planning stages. I remember listening to the Adventures in Coffee um, episode where you had the Masters of Wine and mm. you were doing this blind tasting between, you know, can these masters of wine taste these coffee? And then can Jules and Scott identify these different price levels of wine? And that was really fun. And mm -hmm. I felt like that's the type of wine comparison that we mostly see. But masters mm -hmm. of wine, I think, are more on the like the barista level, like they're not producers. And so yeah. I felt like mm -hmm. that part of the conversation was missing. And so I felt like, OK, the mm -hmm. Adventures in Coffee audience has already had an introduction to coffee and wine. But mm -hmm. it's still more of the same, where we're still talking at this surface mm -hmm. level. And so I knew, I knew from the beginning that I really wanted to do something at a more profound production level, because that's also my expertise. And I remember in that first conversation mentioning that I wanted to have a producer. And I remember Scott saying, now mm -hmm. it's really hard. It's been hard to get producers to talk to us. They don't like to like be recorded and go on record. And then we went into this whole conversation of like, I know, like I have trouble getting producers to talk to me because of this yeah. power imbalance, where if they criticize the industry that they're a part of, then it's really dangerous for them. And so we think that they have all of this like market access and autonomy, but they don't, there's a lot of pressure on them. And so I'm like, why don't we talk about that? And so like, there's all of these things that I, you know, but then this episode, I'm like, yeah, but that's not interesting. And so I just kept coming back to this thing of, what are people going to find interesting, which is not something I ask myself. I'm just like, if I find it interesting, the end. And then I make mm, an episode mm, mm. about it. And, you know, amen. I mean, I love that approach as well. Um, and that's in fil with filter stories, that was very much the approach, right? If I found something interesting in filter stories, whatever it was, however niche, 
do it because hey <laughs> i was accountable to, n- to nobody except my listeners and if i make stuff that i like and they tune in if they want to mm-hmm. but, but um just going back to what you said so so we decided early on i think we were going to make a, an episode about fermentation or processing there were there were many conversations between you and i i remember over a period of weeks where we were like we want to make a thing about processing we want to make a thing about you know how do coffee growers uh, and, and wine growers how do they do what they do and we'll find a story, right, once we speak to a wine producer and a coffee producer. So you went out, you spoke to Carla, you spoke to Todd. Well, actually, for your listeners, I spoke to them because you had COVID. <laughs> but, but you were in the room. Yeah. And I could play some of that tape. You were like, you were sneezing every other minute. Uh, no, I was coughing. It was awful. I mean, do you listeners want to hear what you sound like when you're coughing and splurting away think, in the background? I think we should have a little sample of that since you have it. <laughs> Anyway, so that's that. Um, so now we had the, the really challenging point of like, okay, we've spoken to Calder and Todd and we've really tried to understand how do they do the picking side, you know, the transportation on the farm side and the processing side. And we had so much material, an hour each of super nerdy, like, you know, <laughs> Todd especially was especially detail orientated. I mean, there was so much that eventually got cut, but my God, in those early drafts, <laughs> minutes and minutes and minutes uh, of just fantastic detail. Yeah, James, can you play us some more of Todd's audio? All right, cool. So for example, remember this piece here where you talk about, you know, Todd picking, right, at night? We harvest everything at night. So we start harvesting at midnight and we finish at 5 a.m. Right, remember that piece? Mm-hmm. So this is, this is basically the whole piece that I cut out. Yeah, um, if I can step back even a second further than that. Um, so for wine grapes, we actually, so we start um, measuring. We measure um, pH, titratable acidity, um, so our acid and sugar levels, um, and then bricks for sugar levels. So we start measuring that about four weeks before we decide to pick. Um, and so that's okay. helping me start a trajectory of ripening. There's a whole minute of talking before we get to that phrase where we pick at night. Yeah, so Todd, Todd was, was amazing in his detail. And he did exactly what we asked him to do. He was great. And it's funny, too. I think the theme that keeps coming back is how difficult this episode was to put together, to put this like last 30 minutes together. It's like it kept ballooning and then we'd pair it back and then it would balloon and then we'd pair it back. Yep, totally. And then yep. and, and I think that's the part that's been so I, I don't know if all of your episodes are like this. Like this one felt particularly like head scratchy and like hmm and then we'd have to go away and we'd think about it and then it's like that's not quite it and that's not quite it and it just yeah. felt really hard it was it was hard <clears throat> the material itself is difficult to work with and the audiences were quite different too anyway so um getting back to the story of how we make this at one point i shared an early draft of a script you know once i edited it and it was very economics focused and then i remember scott and jules were like this is turning into an economics lecture. Like, this is not what Adventures in Coffee is. <laughs> so we're like, hmm, yeah, I can maybe pair that one bit. And then we, I think eventually we settled on this idea of, okay, there is one point we want to make, and it's a very strong point, And that's a point around, you know, coffee producers who are financially some of the most, let's say, pressed in the supply chain, uh, really shouldn't be asked to be taking these quite big risks, which can you know, potentially ruin their production. So that was the message. And I think we kind of settled on that as, as I think we all agreed on this and it's like, right, well, how do we make this point as like strongly as we can? So we recorded it in draft form, right? And I, basically what happened is that we all sat in a room. I had, I made a script. Um, you'd seen the script, you'd added to the script. Scott and Jules had, had had a quick look and then we recorded the thing and we had this like 50 minute episode in raw tape and it went off in this direction, went off in that direction. And it was a big kind of jumbled mess of ideas. And th- but by the way, this is like what happens in, in oftentimes in, in any uh, story crafting. For example, a, a, a future episode that's coming out with Jules. He's doing a story about Jamaican uh, coffee, Jamaican Blue Mountain. It's a fascinating story. We've done all the interviews, right, with the other people, with, with like people outside. We come into a studio, we record the thing, and that first cut is like an hour long. Very normal. And we've got to halve it. We've got to turn, take it in two. So what do you cut out? What do you leave in? And then there's this kind of constant process of just... Um, I call it chiseling the stone. It's like Michelangelo, you know, he has his rough shape of a, of a sculpture and then you go, well, I, I, Todd's talking a bit too long here. I mean, he's, he's made the point of it. Do we need him to say the same thing three times? Chop, chop, chop. You know, uh, you know, do we need to know about Rogelio and, you know, uh, the tools that he uses on the farm? Well, it's nice to know, but in actually the point's been made already in the grander scheme that Carla operates, as she says, very low tech. So again, it's just reinforcing a point that's already been made. So, you know, let's cut that off. And um, 
a lot of tangents, you know, you made a beautiful description between like what a coffee farm looks like and what a wine or a vineyard looks like. And I was like, this is beautiful, but it's not really advancing the story anywhere mm -hmm. because it doesn't have a point to it. So let's cut it. And just a million of those little decisions. And eventually you get something that's much more contained and concise. Mm -hmm. And I think that contrast is really interesting because my podcast is a lot of tangents because I don't know what the thing is until I make it. And and then I don't put the pressure on myself to like keep chiseling. It's sort of like, you know, this is an offering and you and I have sort of talked about the, the different styles and how there's you know room for both and there's all kinds of audiences that want to sure. spend however much time they want to spend. Um, but I thought it was really interesting how even once we had that really strong focus, uh, we want to tell the story of the people who can least bear the burden are the ones who often bear the burden of uh, innovation and, and different processing styles. Even once we're like, we know we want to talk about this, I think that the next tension was, well, then how do we get people to care because the consumers aren't the one who's pushing this? And so then we had a whole other like, and then what? And so what? And then... Mm -hmm. You know, we, we really we really couldn't connect it to this is true and why would anybody care? And do we want to tell a story that makes people feel kind of hopeless or helpless or just like, wow, that sucks and I nothing to do with me? Yeah, totally. No one likes those stories. I hate those stories, you know. <laughs> why, why do we hate talking about climate change? I mean, it's the same sort of deal. On an individual basis, we have such limited impact. Yeah, but I think uh, this particular case where we're trying to translate basically the, the subtleties of, I mean, essentially we're, we're doing an economics episode, you know, which is very industry focused, but trying to make it relevant for a consumer audience. Um, so yeah, it, it was a massive challenge. Um, it's a difficult needle to thread. And you know what, to be honest, I don't even know to what extent we did thread that needle so well to kind of meet, you know, the needs of, you know, the Adventure in Coffee audience or, you know, uh, your listeners. You know, as I think I said before, this is one of the most challenging episodes we ever made. Um, and I'm trying to think, how do we thread it in the end? Um, well, so we had Jules kind of, you know, being our, our fall guy and, and saying, like, I'm not asking for this. I'm not the person contributing to the problem. So if mm -hmm. I'm not part yeah. of the problem, what what can I do? And I think yeah. that was a powerful point that just because you're not part of the problem doesn't mean you can't be part of the solution. And saying yeah. that, you know, these two things, they're not mutually exclusive. And so... yeah. And you, and you make a great point because early on, uh, when I was kind of conceiving of like, how am I going to, when I was scripting this thing, I was like, um, I definitely see a role for Jules and a role for Scott. I mean, in the scripting process, I just imagine this is who they are. They're real people. Scott's a coffee nerd and uh, Jules is, you know, an everyday coffee lover. And so it's just like, well, let's just lean into that. So Scott, you know, he has been banging the drum sometimes about amazing fermentation. So he can be the specialty coffee person. It's like, well, why not do fermentations at the farm level? And, you know, Jules is to be like, uh, and so what is, why, why should I care? And so that kind of helped us get through the narrative. But um, I think also the, the power of an introduction, of setting, setting it all up. Often when crafting these kind of audio stories, um, the first three, four minutes are so like critical to um, create a question, tension, that needs it to be resolved in the rest of the episode. And uh, so before you came into the episode, you know, Scott and Jules were talking about like, you know, the contrast between coffee and wine and how it, look, look how much we've already borrowed and look how much more we could borrow. And it's like, whoa, 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 do we want to do that? And then you used the word, I think on your own bat, on, you said the word dangerous. Mm -hmm. And that was, I think, a strong hook. It's like, huh, dangerous. How, is, how can this be dangerous? Um, that was really so, striking for me in our, in our mm. planning conversations when because I'm so in it and I see it, it's just so obvious to me how harmful this is for producers who don't have the means or who, who it's taken them down this, this really um, unfortunate path. And then when Jules admitted, she's like, I've never thought about that. Like she's never thought about the other side of having these mm -hmm. trends. And, it, and she was thinking, I think, more it was a problem from a perspective of it's confusing for consumers. Like, it just seems, like, unnecessary. Like, it just seems kind of annoying and pretentious to have, like, all of these terms. And it just hadn't occurred to her that there's another side, that there are real people who are investing and don't have the money to invest and going into debt and going out of business just to make this thing that is kind of, like, entertaining on a label. Totally. This is what's interesting as a show at, at Adventures in Coffee you know, we're always like, to, how, to what extent do we want to kind of go down these really, for example, like 
crazy fermentation processes that we've never heard about on a coffee bag. It's such a niche thing to focus on in the world of coffee, right? For the every, everyday coffee lover, consumer, like, well, I don't know, it's just one... You know, I want to know how to get a better grind setting, or I want to know how to, you know, uh, how to make, how do I get better steamed milk? So it was, it felt really niche. And and as a show, we're always kind of debating, like, do we want to pick on these really niche things and go deep on them? Because at the end of the day, if someone comes to a show called Adventures in Coffee, and they're like, I want to make better espresso at home, <laughs> is this the sort of story they want, they need to hear? Mm-hmm. So that's why we, we we made a kind of editorial choice, not to not to do too many of these sort, do some that we think are really important and really interesting but if the whole show is this um i don't think it's going to be of value to the agenda to a, you know everyday coffee lover and i can say this from experience having done filter stories you know i took listeners right to the depth of history you know in el salvador and looked at the big contrast between uh, producers who are wealthy versus those who are more humble in their means and what that means about market access etc cetera, etc cetera. and you know i my, my friends who've been listening in from day one they're like uh, but James, uh, I just want to know when I should buy good beans. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah. Hmm. Yeah, but I think that that's our, at least that's how I see my role, is that if you really like coffee, then you should want to make it keep existing and work on this path that it may not exist, where the younger generation is not interested in growing coffee, where the older generation is feeling all of this pressure, where climate change is mm. moving the boundary. And so I don't think we have the luxury to be like, well, I just want to make good espresso. I just want to know what to drink because these things aren't going to exist anymore. And it sounds really alarmist and it sounds really dramatic, but it's true. Like these, I hear you. I mean, I, even in my house where I live on a coffee farm and I'm walking by, there are so many coffee farms here that are abandoned, where people are just having to leave. And if we keep only focusing on the fun parts, it's actually not going to exist anymore. I, I mean, Lucy, I mean, I'm in total agreement. Um, and I think I, I often try to bring, you know, issues of farm, you know, sustainability and farming practices and, and our role as consumers into the conversation. People don't want to hear it. I know it's not always been easy trying to convince you know scott and jules to talk to do these sorts of stories um because you know they're very consumer orientated the consumer world is so divorced from the from the growing world mm-hmm. um and as you say it's it's crazy to it's crazy because it's like a house of cards and as soon as producers stop producing coffee the whole thing is billions and billions are going to come crashing down and we'll be there being like looking at the rubble being like ah, oh, we told you so yeah so, James, something that I thought was really interesting in this process was how much time we spent on the takeaways. So how much time of our just planning and talking was like, how are we going to give people something that they can do, something tangible? And there was a lot of pressure to, you know, give people something that they could do. And we just couldn't come up with it. <laughs> it was really hard, wasn't it? Really hard. Um, yeah, because as a show on Adventures in Coffee, we try really hard to give people you know an empowering message we don't always succeed to be honest because it's really really hard to find a solution sometimes to these like enormous problems and i don't even know if we succeeded in this particular example with this episode that we made but our intention is always to offer like takeaway actionable advice like that part was interesting to me i'm like look at how us people in this industry people in this profession are going round and round and we with our brains can't figure this out like that to me is the story is that there is no clear solution and that it's going to be everybody coming up with their own solution. So it's like, let's spend a little bit more time on the problem and let everybody think about what they can do, like how they can contribute in a hundred different ways. So, but I, I hear it like in, in terms of your podcast, I know this as a listener, I have listened to it and I'm like, you t- basically gave me three really interesting nuggets to think about. But I remember leaving the episode being like, so what was the main takeaway though? Like what was the... <laughs> And it's funny. I mean, this is the hardest part about storytelling is trying to figure out what's the point of the story. Mm -hmm. Always the hardest part. But when you get it right, it's like, oh, duh, that's what it was. (laughs) But it's really hard to find. No, I didn't give it because a lot of the times I don't know. And I don't make that like a barrier to making something because I think somebody, I, I think of myself as like a steward of information or just like a vessel. I'm like, I can take it this far and someone else needs to take it further. Like, I don't put the mm. pressure on myself to be like, this is the end. I'm like, this is one stop mm. along the road. And I hope, I hope you, dear listener, can like take it to the next level because I don't know what it is. And like, when I <laughs> think about all of these issues and trying to have some solution or some, I just feel so naive. You know, just like, who am I to come up with a solution? <laughs> like, that's crazy. Sure. But, you know, if it's not you, 
I mean, if it's not me, if it's not anybody listening, then whose is it? Well, I, I guess I, you're right. That's not quite fair. I would say that I think my role and the solution that I provide is awareness. And, and I leave, I give myself kind of that much space mm-hmm. to say, if mm-hmm. I can provide awareness, I have done something. I've contributed in some way. And then someone else can yes. sort of pick that up. And that's definitely space for that. I mean, that's just, you, you see that a lot with like the BBC radio documentary, Channel 4 type stuff, where they don't provide solutions. They're like, now we're going to take you into, you know, this country here and look at this problem. And you're going to be walk away being like, now I understand the problem and the issues, but like how to fix it, heaven knows. <laughs> it just is. Yeah. Uh, one thing I do want to mention though, if we're speaking about um, darlings, so in radio world, we talk about darlings, right? Kill your darlings. And and I've got very good over the years. I've been doing this for, I don't know, five years now. Um, uh, at killing my darlings. Um, but there was one that was super, this, even in this episode, I found it really hard to kill. Um, so Carla at the end, remember in our, interview of Carla she uh, I can even play this tape in fact maybe I will play this tape uh, mm. here but she was talking about um, I asked her like so you, you sell your coffee for this price why not just sell it for 10 times or whatever it is actually do you want to listen to that piece of tape and then we can reflect on it oh yeah let's do that Carla it's been amazing uh, thank you so much for your time I mean w- one final question I mean this, mm-hmm. but, uh, what if you were to say hey coffee roasters mm-hmm. hey coffee world mm-hmm. we're going to sell these coffees you know our specialty mm-hmm. coffees at $10 a pound mm-hmm. take it or leave it what would happen? What would be the response? Um, I'm not entirely sure. I would think I would think that definitely some people wouldn't take it, and I think that other people would. What I've learned from throughout the years is that a lot of it has to do with confidence, which I think is something that as coffee producers we lack a lot of, um, and that's why I go back and say that that first year that we sold our coffee for a dollar something. <laughs> um, people told us this in good faith. Like I genuinely believe that they were giving us good advice in their hearts. Maybe out in the world, it wasn't the best, Um, but that's what they believed coffee to be worth and to be a good price for it. Whereas now that I think about it, you know, that was a very low price to be asking for, even at that time, and even for it to be our first specialty harvest that we were marketing that way and selling independently. Um, so I think that that is something that with like as producers, we definitely have to work a lot on, on like the softer skills, um, as they're called. But yeah, I think that if you were to say like, oh, I'm going to sell you this for $10, uh, give me your money for for a pound of coffee. Um, I think that some people might, might take it actually. Um, and I think that still to this day, coffee is sold at low prices even in the specialty market and i think that a lot of that has to do with confidence so then even though this year i feel like we are getting a better price than we did last year and that we did the previous years um i'm sure that we could still be charging more and i think that that's why i value a lot of the relationships that we have with with clients um i think that we're very fortunate to have like the good people in coffee, um, buying our coffee, our farm's coffee and telling us, uh, you know, like you should be charging more or I'm going to be paying you more. Um, but I think that if mm. as a coffee farmer, we had that confidence, we wouldn't need that to be told to us. We would instead be charging what we should <laughs> um, directly. But yes, I think that that's a very complicated um thing to 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 answer <laughs> your question i really wanted to bring that into the narrative somehow could because if we contrast that with, with what todd says and in a quick and i'll just quickly play that too like a snippet of that oh yeah so what would stop you from say hey 90s is great but why not sell it for 200 dollars a bottle uh well two things one is just pure market demand if the demand's not there at 200 dollars a bottle we have no business to do that. Um, but the other one is we don't want, even if there are a few people who would love to buy that, they love the wine that much, we don't want the wine to only go to a couple hands. We do want some level um, of some openness to people in the market who can buy it um, at different price points. Um, so I feel like there's probably a very small portion of people who would be wanting to spend $200 for a Pinot Noir, California Pinot Noir. Um, and that's if you look at the market, there 
aren't really any $200 Pinot, California Pinot Noirs um, on the market right now. Right. So I reflect on that and it's, you know, it's very measured, right? Supply, demand, market needs, yada, yada. I asked the same question of Carla and she talks about confidence. Right. Confidence doesn't even come into it with Todd. There's not any like self-esteem. There's not any like emotional component. It's just pure economics. No. It's pure numbers. This a $200 Pinot doesn't exist from California. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be in that space. But it's interesting to hear him talking about how $90 is like the accessible range. Like that's the, <laughs> that's what they're trying to be. They're trying to be the accessible $90 bottle. My gift bottle. of humanity. Yeah, absolutely. So like all of those things, it's like, yes, it's the same point over and over again. But I just find it so interesting to like, because I'm a hammer, to just really hammer at home. Like these worlds are different and it's so unhelpful to compare them. I mean, I think the point that didn't really get made that I personally like as a human wanted to come across is that like when we're imposing this like wine narrative on coffee, it's really an erasure of like the colonial and imperial systems. Like we get to forget that part and then just think of it as this like really idyllic romantic, you know, coffee farmer because wine farmers are very romantic. They're in castles, they're in chateaus, they're in France. And and so we get to think that, oh, that must be what it's like too when we use the same language. And it's like, oh, you guys, I don't, we're not helping. We're not helping here at all. I hear you. And I, again, editorially, um, I have these same thoughts sometimes. And uh, actually, sometimes it actually uh, it does change the narrative. I mean, there have been moments where, you know, in the show, uh, we're like, oh, why don't we speak to like this person for the show? I'm like, do we really want to be talking to someone who has like a direct connection to colonialism? Like that firm is directly connected. Do we really want to bring them in on the show when talking about, for example, you know, the black experience in Jamaica in the 1700s? <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, let's see, if I may. Um, one final point I want to raise. Um, so this episode of, of Adventures in Coffee obviously was geared towards consumers, coffee drinkers, right? And I believe that there are many of your listeners who run coffee farms, own coffee farms. So what we said to the consumers, right, was, hey, don't put pressure. Don't seek out these crazy fermentation techniques um, because you're putting pressure, which then puts producers who have less economic means compared to, say, a roaster or a, vine- or, or a winemaker. Um, <laughs> to take big risks. So, but that's, that's a consumer advice. Um, here's a challenge for you. What if I'm a producer? Uh, what if I'm a coffee producer? Um, and indeed I have a bit of capital. I want to take those risks. I see this market demand for this sort of thing. Like what do you say to them? I am a big supporter of producers who want to experiment because it just lights them up because they find it super interesting. And, and I have met producers like that who were just really curious, really nerdy and, and really have this genuine enjoyment of processing. And I think that comes across in the coffee versus somebody who is doing it from this pressure, somebody who's doing it from a um, just scared and trying to compete versus somebody who's inspired. And I think the problem is those things can often look the same to a consumer. You know, you don't know if a producer was doing it as an innovative just inspirational fun thing or if they felt pressure and they have faced some consequences from this so i mean i'm more on the move of just not putting processing on bags at all like i've sort of shifted my personal perspective on this before where it was like you brought it up in the beginning with the wine bottle with you know the more information we have in this wine model the more perceived uh, value there is in the product and so wine has moved into that of like just jamming labels with as much information as possible and websites and just more and more information um and i'm not sure that's the way to go i i like the idea of producers making coffee however they want and then just you know as a consumer it's like well you just really like how it tastes so i don't know i in the beginning i used to talk a lot about instead of saying like washed or natural like maybe describing the process and now I'm really going against that and saying like I don't I don't know if that needs to be on there. So it's an evolving it's an evolving thought and evolving like advice. I hear you. I hear you. But the thing is, we know that fermentation techniques can lead to changes in flavor, sometimes very valuable changes in flavor. Mm-hmm. So what do we say to a producer who wants to change the flavor of their coffee and experiment? I I mean that's I feel like we shouldn't say anything. 
right? The whole point is like, I don't know if we should be having opinions about what coffee producers are doing because we don't have opinions about what wine producers are doing. We don't have that feedback. So the question is not, well, should we be pro this or anti this? I feel like we shouldn't have a say as consumers in this part of the business. Let them do whatever they want to do. Well said, well said. So um, we should probably wrap this up for the benefit of your dear listeners. So like it just well, thank you, James, for taking the time to make this little extra bit on the episode. And until next time. No, the pleasure's been all mine. It's so rare that I get to do something like this to talk about the behind the scenes and I hope your listeners care. Did did you care, listener? Did you care? <laughs> I hope you cared. <laughs> Where can people find you, James? Instagram's probably the easiest place at Filter Stories Podcast. And yeah, you'll find all my various shows. Um you find a history of coffee filter stories adventures in coffee just type it into any good podcast player and they will turn up like magic yes absolutely i've enjoyed a lot of those series so i'll definitely put my my list of my favorites and then kind of everything else that you're connected to oh that's very nice of you cool well thanks for thanks for this it's been a tremendous amount of fun